I read a story this week of a man who uh, was on a bridge about to jump and another man came upon him and he said, don't do it. The man responded to him. He said, nobody loves me. And he said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And he said, well, are you a Christian or are you a Jew? He said, a Christian. The man said, well, me too. Are you a Protestant or a Catholic? He said, Protestant. He said, me too. He said, what denomination are you? He said, Baptist. He said, me too. Are you Northern Baptist or are you Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. He said, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. He said, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. He said, me too. He said, are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of Council 1912. And he said, heretic, die. And he pushed him off the bridge. Advent is a peculiar and wild time for us. The prophet Malachi says to us today, see, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is the one who is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Today we hear the cry of the prophet, prepare the way for the Lord. It's strange because we're told that while we're busy doing the work of preparing the way, the text tells us that God actually appears suddenly. All of the sudden, God arrives. What we understand as slow, faithful, monotonous, patient kind of work, God just seems to show up all at once. And what is or what should be our human response to this God who shows up all of the sudden? We should ask ourselves, what do we do when this God shows up? And all of the aspiring sopranos in the room should remember those precious words of that song, Oh Holy Night, what do we do on the night when the Savior is born? We fall on our knees. But this season of Advent, it leads us not so much to the birth of a baby. This isn't just preparation for nativity. This season of Advent leads us somewhere else altogether. It leads us into that long-anticipated day of the Lord, when the old age of sin and death will pass away. This is why, in a sense, all of our days are lived in this season of Advent in expectation in hope. So Advent, it's not so much a season that we pass through. 
We don't just do this for a few weeks and then move on to something different. Advent isn't a season so much as it is the foundation for all of the seasons in which we live our lives. And in Advent, what we find is that preparing the way of the Lord is not the work that we do. Preparing the way of the Lord is the work that God is doing. Our job is to simply locate ourselves, to place ourselves in the work that God is doing. So we ask ourselves, what is that work? And the prophet tells us that every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked paths will be made straight. The rough places, plain. This is the work that God is doing in the world. It's the work that we should be joining in and finding ways to participate in alongside God. If you know anything about Tulsa, you know that right now uh, the stretch of Yale between 81st and 91st. Anybody know where I'm talking about? Yeah, Jody is like emphatically like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. It is the most fun one-mile stretch of drive in all of Tulsa and has been for a really long time. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it seems like out of nowhere, it just goes straight up and winds and turns and then straight back down. A lot of fun, especially if you're just a little stupid. It's a lot of fun. But over the next... It's Tulsa, so who knows how long. Um, what they're doing is making this dangerous, fun stretch of road less dangerous for all of us. They're coming in and they're going to fill the low valleys. They're going to cut into the hills. They're going to make that crooked way straight. And in the end, it's going to be less fun. But this is something of what God is doing in the world. Taking these sections of our lives and of our world and making them a little less dangerous. Bringing down those high places, filling in those places that have been brought low. But this kind of geography, it isn't just circumstantial. This isn't just where we happen to find ourselves. What we're talking about, again, isn't about necessarily physical mountains and hills and valleys and roads. Throughout history and even today in cities around the world, it is the, the affluent, the powerful, the rich, the wealthy who have positioned themselves to live in the hills that overlook all of the commoners below. If you're familiar with that 500 hats of Bartholomew Cubbins story, uh, where do you find the king? He lives way up on the mountain, looking down over all of those who serp him. In New York City, our penthouses serve to do the exact same kind of thing. Fleming Rutledge says that it's human nature being what it is. A lot of our enjoyment in life comes from having things that others don't have. And that's true, isn't it? That the reason we grasp for things, the reason that a season like Christmas is so exciting because we give gifts and what we hope is inside of those gifts are things that other people might not have. That's why it's exciting. Fleming Rutledge goes on to say that she imagines this is something of the allure and the thrill of flying first class. She says, it's not the comfort of the seat, I imagine. 
She says she imagines because she apparently has never flown first class. But she says, it's not the comfort of the seat, I imagine, but the presence of the little curtain separating you from all the lower orders in the back of the plane. But when God appears, something happens. God appears all of a sudden, and God tears down that little curtain that separates us from the little orders in the back of the airplane. Mary, when the angel of the Lord appears, which we read this morning, and tells Mary that she's going to bear a son, she responds in this way, God has put down the mighty from their seats and has exalted the humble and the meek. God, it seems, is about to take all of the fun out of the drive. The problem is, is we try to locate ourselves within this geography, that we are either on the hill or we are in the valley. We try to locate ourselves socially or politically by saying we either identify with the mighty or we identify with the humble and the meek. And we think that it's as if we are permanently fixed in one location or the other, alongside one kind of people or group and not the other. And if we're honest, we tend to only see ourselves in the valley with the meek, right? Because the people who are the mighty, the people who are powerful, the ones who live on the hills, they don't look like they have any problems. And we know of our own lives, that we are full of problems. So because we have problems, surely we are the ones who are in the valleys. We are the ones who have been brought low. We are the humble and the meek. But dividing up the world in this way, good and evil, mighty and meek, lofty and lowly, this is a universal human phenomenon. It's something that we have been doing throughout history from the beginning of time. And it's a result of us reacting out of our insecurity. Again, to quote Fleming Rutledge, she says, It would be absurd if it weren't so deadly serious. The way that we create these divisions and divide ourselves up, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. In December of 2001, on the second Sunday of Advent, Fleming Rutledge preached a sermon titled Advent at Ground Zero. And remember, December of 2001, this is just a few months after the events of 9-11. And she points to this absurd reality, this dangerous reality of how we divide up the world in this way. She says this, Here is Osama bin Laden in his cave separating humanity into two groups, the faithful and the infidels. Here we are, on the other side of the globe, talking about civilization versus barbarism. The point is that the human tendency to make these absolute distinctions is universal, she says. And of course, we always, always place ourselves on the side of the good guys, end quote. The prophet Malachi says much of the same in our Old Testament reading today, which we heard a little bit ago, that you shall distinguish between the righteous and 
the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is not a modern idea. This is not Western philosophy. Our human nature throughout history has bent us toward making determinations on who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And this holds up in the Gospels. John the Baptist comes with a similar word. This is out of Matthew 3. The Messiah's winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the questions we should be asking this morning, who is wheat and who are the chaff? Who are going to be judged and who of us get to stand around and watch the judgment take place? Unfortunately, the reality for us is much, much more complicated. I'm going to butcher this last name, but just hang with me. This individual's name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he was a decorated soldier in the Soviet Union. But he found himself imprisoned in the gulag for privately criticizing Joseph Stalin. And he did a lot of writing during this time, and one of the things that he wrote while he was imprisoned was this. If only it were all so simple, this idea of dividing up the, wor the world in good and evil. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil, he says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The reality is that within each one of us, there is wheat and there is chaff. There are dark formations inside of each one of us. We're all capable of immense good and immense evil. This is why we can honestly say week after week after week these words of confession, this corporate confession, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. All of us in one way or another, we are in active rebellion against God and God's work in our lives. C.S. Lewis says that fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. What we need is not just to get better at being human. He says, we are all rebels who must lay down our arms. This is the theme of Advent, that Christ is on the move. And Christ is coming to disarm us all. This is the promise of Advent. Like the prophet Isaiah says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But this kind of coming, it doesn't happen without judgment, without refiner's fire or fuller's soap. We should note this about judgment because we're so prone to dividing up the world into the good guys, which are us, and the bad guys, which are those guys way over there. Oftentimes we think judgment is only about other people. <laughs> that we kind of long for judgment, but only in the sense that it's going to happen to them and it's not going to happen to me, right? Again, Malachi asks us today, who can stand? Who can endure 
the coming of the Lord. In the first letter that Peter writes, the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. (laughs) That means you and me. That when the judgment of God comes, and it will, we don't get to stand a long way off and watch God judge those evil people who are way over there. God's judgment comes, and it starts with the household of God. It starts with us. It seems it's going to start right here. But here's the thing about judgment. Is that when God judges, it's not for the sake of harming us. It's for the sake of healing us. It's about making us whole in a way that only stripping away everything that isn't truly us can do. This is why we have to draw this distinction of good and evil in the right place, not between groups, not between races or genders or orientations, but between what Paul calls Adam and Christ. And the truth is, a lot of us still have a lot of the old Adam living inside of us. The old creation and the new creation. As Bonhoeffer says, the celebration of Advent, it's possible only to those who are troubled in soul. It's only possible to those who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. The trick is what we hope for can't be just the judgment of those evil people a long way off. Still, Advent is about telling the truth. (laughs) Advent is about telling the truth about who we are and learning to believe that Christ coming again to judge the world really is good news because it's Christ who's doing the judging. And we don't do well here. We continue to compare one group to another, to compare one Christian to another Christian, to compare ourselves to our friends and to our families. And we do it out of some weak understanding of what goodness actually is. The reality is that we never know the kind of pressures that other people are under. And at the same time, we never know what kind of good might be possible under different conditions. Luckily for us, the test of Christian nature, the litmus test for us as Christians of the Spirit's work in our lives, it isn't based on degrees of goodness. The test is simply the love of Christ present in our lives. His love for us and our love for him and our love for one another. So preparing the way of the Lord means telling the truth about who we are. It means searching out and it means seeking where that dividing line of good and evil cuts through our own hearts. Knowing our shadow side. Knowing the conditions that cause these dark formations to take shape in us. Knowing that there's no magical solution or potion. There are no words we can just magically say over ourselves to fix it. We're here in Advent and Advent is every season of our lives because whatever these dark formations are in us, 
Whatever that dividing line in us, wherever it exists, it's going to exist for the rest of your life. <laughs> this is the good news of Advent. That Christ comes. So we tell the truth, but we always tell it on ourselves. Because the fact is, we don't know anyone else's truth. And this work, the work of telling truth and reorienting our lives toward different, a different goal for the world, the New Testament calls this kind of work repentance. Repentance. It's not just about being sorry. Nor does it equate to just a loss of self-esteem. Repentance, asking forgiveness, it's not something that's just reserved for the losers, the people who don't happen to win. This is how we think about conflict. That if I just win in the conflict, I don't have to apologize. And so, so much of the aggression that we often bring to conflict, it's not really from a sense of righteousness, of being right. It's really coming from a sense of our own insecurity that at the end of the day, we don't have to be the ones to say we're sorry because we think that only the losers apologize. Usually, when we're unable to amend our lives, it's either out of this insecurity of not wanting to look weak, but on the other end, we can start to tend to say we're sorry so much that it just becomes this kind of reflexive, repetitive, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it stops to mean anything. Our entrance and our journey into Advent, into an Advent life, means taking a good long look, not at someone else's deficiencies, not at other people's faults or other people's goodness, but at our own. The prophet Malachi for us Protestant Christians. He's the one who gets the final word in our Old Testament. And in the next to last verse, Malachi speaks about this great and terrible day, the day of judgment and the second coming of the Lord. Again, he calls it a great and terrible day, a time when all that has been wrong will be made right. And the example that Malachi gives for this day of judgment, he turns from language of wrath and flames to something else altogether. He says that great and terrible day when we experience the coming of the Lord, he says this, I will send you the prophet and he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. The worst thing in the world, the prophet says, is estrangement within our own families. This is a sign of the final judgment of God, the worst curse upon the human race. And for whatever reason, we're wired this way. <laughs> We are so prone to this kind of conflict and this kind of estrangement. We are less than two weeks from the other side of Thanksgiving, and some of you are still recovering <laughs> from the kinds of conversations and interactions you had to have, not with strangers or acquaintances, but with the people who know you the best. 
we are so often more kind to strangers than the people we share DNA with. And if anybody in the country gets this, we get this here in the almost south, right? The idea of southern hospitality. I heard someone define southern hospitality as being kind to your face and then stabs you in the back, right? We become like that man on the bridge, full of hope and willingness to help, so long as he's just some guy, right? So long as he's just a stranger on the bridge that he thinks needs to know that, well, God loves you. But once we find out that we're related to this guy, once we find out that he's almost one of us, we shout heretic and push him off the bridge. Not plagues, not wars, not famines. This, the prophet says, is the worst curse upon the human race. So if you're young and you're feeling miserable about your parents, or if you are a parent and feeling worried about your children, know this, that God desires for the hearts of parents to turn toward their children and for the hearts of the children to turn to their parents. And if family breakdown is a sign of the old age, if it's a sign of the age of sin and the age of death, then reconciliation between families, between parents and their children, this is a sign that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by working out that reconciliation, we become people who are preparing the way of the Lord. Maybe you don't have these kinds of problems in your family right now, immediately. But I promise you, if you just go back to your family tree a little bit, you probably don't have to go very far to find this kind of heartbreaking trouble somewhere. And in every case where this happens, the fracturing of the most basic human connection is the antithesis of what God intends for God's people. That's not to say there are not times when dividing or leaving isn't right or isn't appropriate. But it's that so often we rush to division over conflict rather than reconciliation. Fleming Rutledge, she studied with these two psychoanalysts and she asked each of them individually, she asked them the same question, what is the most important ingredient in a strong marriage? And they both gave her the same answer. Different religious backgrounds, different philosophical perspectives, they both gave the same answer. The most important ingredient is asking forgiveness. Today is the Sunday of peace. This is the work of peace and peacemaking. To work toward a reality when everything between us is appropriate. This is why we pause every Sunday with one another and offer these words of grace and peace. Peace is about advocating for the mutual flourishing of all life. Again, regardless of nationality, regardless of creed or race or gender, rather than trying to divide the world into who is good and who is bad. And who are the heroes and who are the villains? Because it can change. And it does change. 
In her sermon that Fleming Rutledge gave, she talks about how immediately after 9-11, it wasn't the stockbrokers and the politicians and the powerful people who were the heroes of New York City. The heroes were now the firefighters. The heroes were the first responders. And so we heard story after story of stockbrokers who were running down the stairs while the firefighters were rushing up the stairs. And we elevated this work of our first responders to the acts of heroics. But it was just a matter of weeks later when this fight breaks out between the NYPD and the fire department of New York, when suddenly the politicians start to demonize one group over another. These things are fluid. They change and they change quickly. All of these categories of good and evil, heroics and villains, and not just out there, but it changes and can change and will change even inside of us. Again, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So today we hear from the prophet that judgment is coming. But we hear that judgment is coming not for them, but it starts with us. It must start with us. And because judgment starts with us, reconciliation starts with us. And when we work for reconciliation, it is a sign that God is on his way. That the old world has passed and the new world, the kingdom of heaven, is near. Not because we're doing it, but because God is doing it. Preparing the way of the Lord means finding our place in that work that God is doing. The work of reconciliation. Of making all things whole again. And even as God lifts up the valleys and brings low the mountains and makes the crooked paths straight, we can trust that the drive will still be fun. Amen.